I'm Rachel Gable. Welcome to the Full Plate Podcast. I'm an ag journalist and a cattle producer, and I'm bringing you the stories of and conversations with those who keep our plates filled. I'm here today with my guest, Kate Miller. She's known online as the Meat Lady. She's blonde. She's bright. My dad would say she has moxie, and she has it in spades. Kate, thank you so much for joining me today. I so appreciate it. I'm so excited to be here. You've been like uh, a longtime supporter now. And so, you know, thank you for your friendship over the years and for, you know, helping make this platform possible. Oh, thank you. Uh, Kate and I do um, have some history and I've written about her a couple of times and and she's one of my go-tos. Everybody has a gut check person and Kate is one of mine. I can reach out to her and make sure that I'm on the right track. And if I need some information, she's always good to point me in the right direction. Um, Kate, I'd like to give you the chance to introduce yourself so that um, everybody knows a little bit about you if they're unfamiliar with you before we get started. Sure. So I grew up on a commercial hog farm in southern Arkansas, where we also ran commercial cows. So pretty steeped in production agriculture. My dad is actually an ag professor. My mom works for the So really um, come from a deeply uh, rooted ag background. I went to college at Oklahoma State University and Connor State College and judged livestock. And that opportunity really gave me um, a window into the ag world that I otherwise would not have had. And coming out of college, uh, I got started in the meat business by, you know, total accident. Um, Had a friend that I had judged with who they had a job opening and And he set me up with my first meat sales job. And I will say comprehensively that that opportunity changed my life in a way that I could not have seen, um, could not have foreseen. And being rooted in production agriculture and yet working and living in consumer focused meat sales is such a unique world to live in. Um, (laughs) I experienced the dynamic of what it's like to be a farmer today. I I actually moved home a couple years ago to take over our family's ranch. And, and yet I experienced on a very visceral level, what our product means to consumers and, and how our marketing strategies need to be tailored to reach a changing and growing demand. So that's me in a nutshell. Pretty much all I think about all day is either chasing cows around Southern Arkansas or putting meat on a plate. (laughs) One of my, one of my favorite, um, (laughs) one of my favorite gals for sure. (laughs) Like, I think where I want to start, you've mentioned before that, the the beef industry and and ranchers in general we've we've talked about how maybe we're missing the mark with consumers a little bit and of course you do a lot of work with chefs and with retailers with those kind of middle folks where it's live cattle leaving our place and beef hitting their plate there's there's some some disconnect there and and you've mentioned raw raw marketing not being the way to go can you tell us a little (laughs) bit about the the rah-rah marketing and why it's not the ticket. Yeah. So I think, you know, to really get into discussing consumer marketing and and what we're doing and the ways that maybe we're missing the mark is to kind of address the state of the union 
currently? Like, what is the dynamic like right now as far as our industry is geared towards consumer-facing marketing? And so the way I see it is that we have two really defined marketing strategies at play within the ag production industry. One of those is the checkoff approach where we are bound by statute as ag producers and we are engaged in marketing meat to consumers. Uh, These campaigns are established by producers and the people in the positions of leadership in these institutions are primarily boomer aged entrepreneurs who have farmed and ranched for a living their whole life. Uh, And I think that that's critical to point out because these campaigns are then executed by AgCom graduates under the guidance of ag agencies who are being paid by these farming and ranching entrepreneurs. And it's important to highlight that because throughout the decision-making process, there's not really any true consumer interaction. And on the far opposite side of that, on the other end of the spectrum, is kind of the ag hate campaign, the anti-vegan, anti-fake meat, anti-anyone who doesn't immediately, you know, agree with us. And this is categorized by headlines like, you know, against the beauty queen from, was it Montana, who needed to shut her flap mm-hmm. trap or comment threads that mark consumers for their lack of insight or experience or knowledge about our products or our production methods. And I think ag influencer culture ascribes to either one or both of these methods. And I call that the rah-rah team. And my key takeaway for anyone listening in on why in my lifetime ag marketing has ultimately been ineffective and continues to lose ground with consumers and the divide between consumers and producers continues to grow every day is because our marketing strategy is not based around the needs and desires of the consumer, but it's based out of hubris and arrogance about what we do and who we are. And I relate it to dating. If you tried either one of these strategies to pick up a date, you would not be successful. Like the checkoff strategy would be like the girl flipping her hair at the bar and saying, I'm so awesome. Like, love me and tell me I'm pretty. No man's (laughs) for that. And the same thing would be, you know, the hate campaign would be the man getting rejected. who's like, well, you're an idiot. I'm the best thing that's ever happened to you. You know, neither one of those those approaches would work in dating or in other marketing strategies. So why are we expecting this to work as a marketing strategy for our entire industry? And then why are we so surprised when it fails to hit or then proceeds to backfire? And I think the question that doesn't get asked often enough is, do we even know that it's not working? And I think that the reality is, is that most of the marketing that takes place by influencers within ag never actually transcends the ag silo. Um, And for us that cross the consumer producer barrier frequently, there's a difference in language and tone and approach that those of us on the consumer facing side employ um, as opposed to those who are involved in producer facing marketing. And as an industry, as we move forward, we have to start separating the two. And I think that's okay. Like you've got to know your audience, right? For those influencers who are trying to reach the ag world and build their brand platform and sell t-shirts and ag, then you have to go through like that raw, raw cheerleading, promoting that culture. But if your goal is to span the gap between producers and consumers, the approach has to be different. And we cannot influence consumers using producer-focused marketing language. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that for me, as I like got into this and I started researching the areas where I personally failed in either like the way I branded myself, for instance, you know, I'm famous for getting mobbed on Twitter, you know, what (laughs) that outpouring of wrath. And obviously some of my personal brand is definitely built on wrath. And I think there's a time and place for a really good, you know, in your face confrontation, but looking objectively at the places where I failed, And I think the places that we fail in ag is a lack of empathy and how we address not only each other, but with the public. And there's a real absence of the desire to seek common ground and mutual understanding. Instead, the raw, raw culture is just very self-righteous about the noble work we do about feeding the world. And frankly, nothing causes someone to glaze over like a self-righteous soapbox about how amazing someone is, right? It's disingenuous and it totally discounts consumer experiences and curiosity and that same arrogance and failure to acknowledge like the shortcomings of agriculture in any way, you know, really confirms the biases of groups that are working against us like HSUS or PETA. You know, their marketing strategy is very easy. It's show people who are generations removed from production agriculture, who have been taught that farming should look like Charlotte's Web, but that's not how we do things anymore. And, you know, when I first got started in meat sales, I was very producer marketing mindset oriented. That's what I had been raised in, right? We do this things this way, and this is the only way kind of thinking. And I learned very quickly that chefs and restaurant owners don't give a shirt about any of that. They care what pays their bills, and they care about what's unique, what's unique about their own concepts and what their specific customers want. And I think that's the key to any conversation that we have going forward about consumer marketing is what are your unique and specific needs? And then circling that back to finding mutual understanding and common ground and using empathy to reach that customer. Mm -hmm. And then delivering on what they want and allowing them to bridge that gap. Right. And it's, you know, discovering what they want and answer, you know, figuring out why they want it. You know, what works for a local bar and grill is not going to work for, you know, the Capitol Grill. A mom and pop hamburger shop has different needs than a Mexican food buffet or a high-end, you know, modern gastropub. But ag has this very one-size-fits-all mindset when we approach consumer marketing. And yet the marketplace is anything but that. And I think that we see that a lot in checkoff promotions specifically. Um, you know, how many times in recent months has NCBA, not calling anybody out, but NCBA <laughs> promoted <laughs> like the Tomahawk ribeye, which is honestly, you know, it's only available in select metropolitan retail markets and maybe 3% of steakhouses nationwide. But how many times has that been the center focus of a Facebook campaign? And I think the same with producer conversations right now about country of origin labeling. Yes, origin claims have a place in marketing, but imported product fills a very specific demographic need on restaurant menus for independent restaurant operators. Not every restaurant owner can operate a prime steakhouse. Not every retail consumer can afford to serve ribeyes every night of the week to their family. And yet our marketing campaigns are constantly centered around either high cost items like the tomahawk and I, new or innovative items like the Vegas Strip or the Can Can Pork <laughs> Chop. And the same goes for our anti-speech campaigns, where food choice 
is a highly personal decision that requires a vast amount of tangible and intangible decisions to be made. And yet we employ this one size fits all mantra of eat beef and fake meat causes cancer. And we spend so much of our marketing bandwidth fighting a really fear-based campaign against veganism and ultimately against food choice. And the root commonality of both of these campaigns, you know, we reduce the failure of them to the long, lowest common denominator, and it's that they target the extremes on the spectrum. In the moderate middle, you know, the bulk of the consuming public is largely ignored. So at some point for us to have a successful marketing strategy, we have to start asking the question of what does the moderate middle want? I think that that is kind of the 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 approach that I take when when I look at how social media in particular is being handled. We have a very um, liberal. He's not anti-ag, but he's not for ag uh, governor. And the first gentleman is a vegan and an activist. So that puts Colorado beef producers in kind of an interesting position. And it's put us in an interesting position a couple of times. And I, I watch some of that social media very carefully and I see a lot of stuff that's vegan oriented and I see the responses there, but I really, I just don't get involved. I might kind of chuckle at it, but I'm just not going to get involved because I don't think that that's a group that I'm ever going to change their mind, A. And B, I think that they're the extreme and it's not your average consumer. Exactly. And, you know, if you're involved in farming in any variety, you're involved in feeding people ultimately. Like that's the, the way that we nobly parlay this. And so if someone's a vegan, who cares? You know, that's that's how I see it. You know, we, we're spending so much time uh, and energy, you know, fighting veganism when that segment of the population is relatively small. They choose to be vegans for a variety of reasons, some of which are, you know, health-based, some of which are morally based. And it's not our job as production agriculturalists to decide why people choose what they eat or what they eat. It's our job as production agriculturalists to make sure that there is enough of what they want to eat and then let the free market handle it from there. Mm-hmm. By finding things that are in in their price point and that are available, like in a lot of rural areas and even not terribly rural areas, some stuff's just hard to find. I, I find myself watching the Food Network and some of the, the chefs like Ina Garten maybe is cooking things that I don't. I can't get that in Fort Morgan, Colorado. Oh, <laughs> I don't even know what it is. Soapbox. Like I like Guida de Laurentiis. Like I, if I'm yes. in a bad mood and I just want to be angry at something, I will click on her show and just be mad about it. Because a lot of these foodie kind of culture, you know, foodie culture is bad about it. And then that has kind of rolled into checkoff culture, promoting things that the average person either doesn't have or it's not practical. And you know, that's where that question about what does the moderate middle want and what does the moderate middle need, we're not asking that question in, in, in the way that we approach marketing. Because if we were, then we would see more ads about promoting or we would see change within the cattle industry and the beef industry that promotes consistency so that every 
time someone walked into a restaurant or every time someone picked something up off the retail shelf, they would have the same eating experience this week as they did with it last week. That's one of the reasons that chicken is so wildly successful is that you can make chicken the same and and you can't yet do that uh, in the beef world. Um, Mm -hmm. No, we would be focusing on cost effective cuts ground beef um you know chuck roast things that are available in every rural walmart that every customer regardless of income or background who wants to eat beef protein they're going to buy more ground beef in their lifetime than they're going to buy ribeyes that's just a fact and yet we spend very little of our bandwidth promoting ways to utilize ground beef when if we look at turkey for instance the turkey world has done so wildly successful with ground turkey and converting ground beef consumers to turkey products based on the paleo diet you know they Mm -hmm. latched onto that early and a decade ago could you even find ground turkey at a supermarket (laughs) i mean really i mean even as a beef producer it's something that i buy now in rotation because a lot of the recipes for, you know, special diets call for ground turkey. And mm-hmm. that's an example of another consumer focused marketing campaign that was successful because they identified a target market that was being underserved. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I cannot possibly be the only woman who is looking at a freezer full of meat every day thinking. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what am I going to make? <laughs> no, I, absolutely. Like I, I, as a meat salesman, a lot of the time when I come home from work, all I want is like yogurt or ice cream or broccoli, you know, anything but protein at that point in the day. But we have to be addressing with, you know, millennial culture right now, who is the, you know, the, we're the age of the the mom at the supermarket, you know, that that average mom needs to know what to do with the pork tenderloin or needs to know what to do with a beef cutlet because those items are going to be on sale and those items are going to be able to be cooked for her family. Can she do the things that she wants to do with those two items in an easy fashion that she can do with chicken? Right. And get that consistent that consistent meal that's going to taste like it did the last time. Yes. I, I use my sister as a kind of barometer too. Obviously she grew up, you know, in 4-H, we had the show livestock. She was on the state livestock judging team. Like she's, she has that background, but then she just, you know, she, she just left ag when she went to college, she went to Baylor and then she went to A&M and she works in Metro Houston. And she, even now says, you know, I walk into that meat, meat section at the grocery store and I'm just overwhelmed and I don't know how to make all of it. I don't know what it is. And, and she's in the, she's in the chicken nugget years with her little boy anyway, but she knows what the chicken is. She knows she can do 17 different things with it, with just what's in, in her cart and in her pantry. And that tends to be what she'll turn to. 
Absolutely. I mean, and that's that's one area that we look at, you know, per capita consumption of proteins over the years. And we see, you know, pork kind of held steady. Chicken has tripled and beef has been cut down by half. And I think part of that is the success story of chicken in the fact that it's mass producible and a quantity in a it's consistent and it's cheap. And those are things that the beef industry can't always say. Um, but we don't do ourselves any favors and how we're to consumers about the things that are available in their meat case. Yep. Do you think that consumers hear some of the, the hubbub within the groups in the beef industry? And because I, as I feel like, boy, if we could all get on, not even on the same page, but even in the same book and we could quit bickering, then <laughs> boy, we could make some headway. Well, but we can't. Do we you think can't. consumers pick up on that? Uh, I don't think until recent years that they probably did. I think some of the country of origin labeling things like Tommy Lauren's expose on calling ground beef, you know, mystery meat dumpster diving. That's definitely going to you know resonate with some consumers. And I think that in the posturing for power and for position amongst beef industry groups, what is being lost is the translation between what we're saying about our industry and what consumers are understanding. Um, and I think that that's one of the, the most damaging things internally and externally is the conversation around claims marketing currently, because there is a place for it. I mean, in the last 10 years, basically all the meat that I sell now of some variety has some claim and origin claims definitely have their place, but you circle back again and not every Mexican restaurant can afford to have a $60 fajita plate imported, you know, thin meats have their place. And yet we, and we discount that as beef producers because we're not producing it, even though it still contributes to driving beef domestic beef demand. And sure. so we're discounting the customers who don't eat like we want them to. And then we're creating fear culture based around things we as producers don't understand. Right. What do you think that chefs want producers to know? <laughs> oh goodness um well it depends on the chef you know this week I've seen 20 something customers that ranged from you know a bar and grill owner who thinks charcuterie plates are stupid to a high-end steakhouse who was you know trying to figure out how to put together a $55 charcuterie plate and so every chef is different, just like every ag producer is different. I think, however, that if we boil down all the commentary that I get, um, it would be that they just want a place to, to ask questions about things that they don't understand or their consumers are ask asking questions about and to be met with an open mind versus a soliloquy on <laughs> why they're wrong. And for me as a salesman, that was a huge learning curve. Um, you know, it, it became to be a, an effective promoter. It has to be less about your story and more about understanding their position. Sure. 
I try to keep that in the back of my head pretty frequently and, and think if you, if I feel the need to start a sentence with, well, actually, <laughs> then I need to not start that sentence. <laughs> I just need to stop talking. <laughs> yeah. And I think that there, I think that there is a place for all of these conversations in the, in one of the real areas that I see it exposed is in antibiotic use as an example. So over the last decade, you know, removing antibiotics from the food system has been such a push at the consumer level, something that a lot of chefs, especially in higher end or mid-range accounts were interested in. We want to make sure that there, you know, this meat was raised without antibiotics. Well, that pendulum swung, right? And we removed antibiotics in some production. Well, what did that mean exactly? And I think that the, the conversations that started, you know, 10 years ago in production agriculture were consumers are idiots. We're still going to use subtherapeutic antibiotics because we have to. And then within the industry, we started doing research and finding out that, in fact, if we you know, cleaned up some animal husbandry tactics, we didn't need antibiotics. And that was resulted in the cost savings, which makes us more efficient. And then suddenly, because of consumer demand and because of consumers asking questions, we're involved in what could be classified as you know, a more efficient and sustainable production scheme. But mm-hmm. on the flip side of that, consumers didn't take into consideration what happened when you remove antibiotics from the system entirely. So for me, like the question that I asked chefs is, yes, we're not using subtherapeutic antibiotics, but we treat sick animals. Is that okay? And a resounding yes is absolutely. We would want you to take care of your animals. So I think that we've seen a moderation of some of that. And I think that we'll see more of that happening um, towards the moderate middle. Now, of course, there's going to be the extremes. And we seem to focus on the extremes, especially Mm -hmm. in the world of like beyond me coming out and things like that. But I really think that that antibiotics um, over the last 10 years has really kind of played out to be a net win for the industry and a net win for the consumer. And if we can highlight places where we found mutual understanding, Uh, that we can bridge that gap a lot more effectively. I agree. I do wish we could clean up some of that labeling so that it wasn't so that like the antibiotic free meat or there was a big sign at my hometown grocery store the other day about the special on USDA inspected meat (laughs) as opposed to the not USDA inspected meat. It was on sale. The other stuff's out and back. (laughs) That was so weird. But I wish that wasn't a value added thing. Like none of it's going to have antibiotics when it hits the plates. It's USDA inspected. Ketchup was always gluten free. I wish that some of those labels didn't come with the value added expectation. You know, and as someone who is very, you know, active in the activism behind food labeling, it's, it always is amazing how little we all know about the ins and outs and the statutes surrounding labeling laws. Of the 155 page PDF document that goes into the highlights of FSIS labeling and meat and poultry, only a small percentage of that is uh, dedicated to claims marketing. And I agree that it needs to be cleaned up um, and 
more broadly defined. Um, but with that, I don't even know, I would not know where to begin to address that because labeling laws are so specific and so unique. I mean, even down to like what font size you're allowed to use and then mm-hmm. the approval process for each individual label is so extreme and so uh, labor intensive uh, for manufacturing companies. You know, it's such a bucket of worms. It's one of those things that the the more you think you know, the less you actually do. And the, the more that you learn, <laughs> the less you know. Right. What. Well, I- I do think that some of that responsibility falls on consumers. And the reason I say that is I was diagnosed with celiac disease, like in 2001, back before anybody knew out of, yeah, before it was hip. (laughs) I've been trying to find something to eat since 2001. But I, I think that it falls to the consumers to some point. If that's something that you prefer or that you require, then you need to make sure that you know what's going into that. And it's, it's your responsibility. Like if I'm going to a wedding and I know there's going to be cake and pasta, I will eat beforehand, not expect them to make sure that I have a gluten-free option. And if I'm sending my kid to school on Christmas cookie day and she can't have something, I'm going to make sure she has a snack and a craft. It's fine. I think some of that has to fall back on the consumers to understand that labeling as well. Absolutely. The onus of labeling is not just on cl- on producers or food marketers to clarify what that means. And that opens up a whole new basket of worms about, is there a good place for consumers to find out real information? And I think if you go to Google and you type in any number of things that are related to production agriculture, how many of the top hits, the things that would come from, you know, a checkoff or an industry association, how many of the top hits are those things? Versus how many of the top hits are, you know, Dr. Oz or a mommy blog or a yoga studio telling you what their interpretation of it is. And so I think our challenge as an industry, regardless of species, is to come up with a repository of information that's consumer friendly. I agree. Either that's like a commonly hosted website or it's hiring influencers you know, from, you know, if, if Ellen is truly, you know, the, the, the consumer influencer for veganism, why isn't Chris Pratt the, you know, consumer influencer for meat production? Right. I keep thinking about that and I keep coming back to the pioneer woman and to all of the other great chefs on TV who make a lot of beef, beef dishes and why that, why does Ellen (laughs) carry more weight than they do. But the whole Ellen thing just baffles me a little bit. I have faith that consumers who aren't already on the fence aren't going to take dietary lifestyle, like major life-changing diet advice from Ellen. And maybe I'm out of touch, but I really think that maybe there's some on the fence But for most people, they're going to (laughs) go, be neat, eat less meat. That's a cute hashtag. 
huh, I better go figure out what to make for dinner. <laughs> right. I don't see that as being like some consumer changing, you know, demographic. I think that amongst, you know, I think the scariest thing that we have to look at is not Ellen's Meatless Mondays, but of the politicians that are being groomed by money that is being supplied by HSUS specifically. You know, I think our, our challenges are far less severe in celebrity influencer culture as it is in the upcoming political cycles. I agree. I agree. That's a good point. <laughs> but again, how do you influence, you know, for, for every Cory Booker that you have, you hope that you have a Crenshaw who, you know, brings, you know, the Texas approach to things. So again, all, we have the challenge as an industry of having to be multifaceted and multifocused in different areas as far as consumer marketing, political marketing, celebrity marketing, influencer marketing. And are we stretched too thin with the resources that we currently have at our disposal? Probably. Probably so. Last question for you on the lab produced meat or the lab produced protein products yes where do you think that's headed so the money behind that is extreme and deep so people like Richard Branson are involved in the investment of that and I think that it's a waste of bandwidth for us as an industry to fight its consumer appeal outright I think that it appeals to a very small demographic in the marketplace I think our best approach is to make sure that it stays regulated by the FDA um, versus FSIS um, so that FDA restrictions are a little bit tighter and a lot more require a lot more oversight than just, you know, meat and poultry labeling. And as long as that we quarantine its labeling and oversight into that silo, um, I think initially we'll be okay. I don't see, I don't see the meat industry's challenge or the beef producers challenge in the next 20 years being replaced by cell cultured meat. Um, I think that our challenges instead are going to be more socio-political in terms of environmental regulation um, and the nationalization, the, the potential nationalization of either agriculture or food manufacturing. I think those are the two places that will cause us more heartburn in the long run than cell cultured meat. I think that's just a pass. I, I don't think cell cultured meat is going anywhere. I think it will serve a very small percentage of the population um, if it gets out of development. Um, but I don't think that it's the, the next big challenge for us to be, you know, working on beating down. Mm -hmm. Okay. I lied. I have one more question <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> from a retail perspective. Granted the plant-based proteins are not really being marketed in my neck of the woods to the extent that they are in, in other places, but it's my understanding that some of them are in the meat case. Does that not kind of go against the consumers who would reach for the plant-based meats out of concerns about humane issues? So I'm, you know, I'm very perplexed at the different ways that those products are going to market. So in my markets, I've seen them in the freezer section next to 
like the frozen burgers, for instance. Like you'll have your Morning Star, you'll have your Beyond Meat, you'll have your Angus patties. And I don't think that any, this is, I don't have research to back this up, but I don't think that any consumer is reaching for the Beyond Meatballs thinking that they're getting uh, an actual meatball. I think the people who are buying those products are very specifically targeting those products because that's in line with their value system. I do think that there is a lot of industry value in in making sure that those products are being regulated appropriately from a labeling standpoint. Um, they are still under the guidance of the FDA. And so are they following marketing protocol on a claims basis? Is the verbiage and the font on the packaging in line with, you know, the, the advised statutes? And I think that there's, that's kind of a slippery slope in terms of what some of the wording is. I think that some of the labels are somewhat misleading. Um, but those will have to be addressed on a case-by-case basis. And we have to remember that the, the governing agency did approve that label. And so are we fighting that label specifically or are we fighting the statute behind it? Mm-hmm. Do you think it's off-putting to those consumers who, have, who are vegan or vegetarian to have to go in the meat counter area I would get have. some of those things? <laughs> that strikes me as very odd. That does strike me as odd as well. Um, I don't... I've not seen them in like the fresh retail case. I've only seen them in the frozen food aisle. And so the frozen foods sections that I've seen them to are right adjacent to the frozen vegetable aisle. Now, if you're having to go to the fresh retail beef case to pick up, um, you know, beyond beef crumbles, then I don't think... I don't think that specific retail positioning by that company is targeting vegans. I think it is targeting people who go to that meat case who are meat consumers out of habit and they see this product and instead of picking up a pound of ground beef that week, they pick up a pound of Beyond Beef Crumbles just to try. Mm -hmm. I don't... I think that that's more of a marketing ploy aimed at non-vegans as a a new consumer group. I agree. I don't think that that consumer confusion is coming through that way. I think if there is any consumer confusion there, it's in the the touting of this plant. It's plant-based, so it must be better for you. But right. you know, that's pretty easy to look at those ingredients and go, <laughs> maybe not so much. <laughs> right. And the people who are truly invested in, in making food decisions based on the health label, they read the labels. I'm one of the people that I pick up everything that I buy at the supermarket, I read the label on. Um, and so if they're labels and they're making those decisions out of conscious health decisions and they have to decide if the parameters on that label fit their own value system and if they're buying that product for for moral reasons then yes but for health reasons that has to be decided by the individual agreed agreed well good well I appreciate our conversation as always I'm looking forward to having you on a panel in an upcoming episode that we'll tell folks more about later. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? Um, I mean, not really. I mean, I don't, 
I never want to convey that I know it all. I, I get that label on Twitter a lot that I'm just a condescending know-it-all. And I'm, I really want to convey that this is, this is just the one thing I know something about. And it's the one thing that I'm really passionate about because it is my livelihood in terms of my family business. And it's my livelihood in terms of my, you know, Monday to Friday job. And so, you know, I really appreciate people for following along. If you have questions, you can find me on Twitter occasionally, <laughs> even though I'm a little <laughs> scared of that platform or you can find me on Facebook um, I'm I'm an open book I'm happy to answer questions about the things that I know and if I don't know about it I I will direct you to a person within the industry that does perfect and on social media at meat lady is that the, yes. the Facebook handle uh, on Facebook I am just Catherine Miller you'll have to find me but I am going to go ahead and set up a meat lady page um, give me until the end of December to get that done on Twitter it is at the meat lady perfect well I so appreciate it I know that you've got cattle to bed down before some weather comes in there in southern Arkansas so I will leave you to it and I so appreciate your time. Well, thank you for having me on and I look forward to talking on to you uh, on that panel as things get closer to time. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Kate. Have a good one. Bye-bye. The Fence Post magazine has been a trusted source for ag information and news since 1980. It's a staple in farm and ranch homes across Colorado, Wyoming, and Nebraska. With news that matters, no matter what segment of the ag industry you find yourself, auction listings, ads, obituaries, and periodic special sections, it's sure to be your go-to. If there's someone on your list who loves ag as much as we do, give them a subscription. That's a year of ag news for less than $5 per month. Give Jeff a call at 800-275-5646 and let them know you heard about it on the Full Plate Podcast. I appreciate you listening to the Full Plate Podcast and encourage you to find me on Facebook at the Full Plate Podcast. Subscribe for upcoming episodes and leave a review. This inaugural episode is sponsored by the Fence Post Magazine.